right. Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast, sponsored by IcarusFC.com. This is episode number 292. And with that number, we'll go back years ago, or rather, just last February, when we still took live soccer for granted. The U.S. women, they qualified for the 2020 Olympics with a 4-0 win over Mexico on February 7th in Carson, California. A crowd of 11,292 fans were there at Dignity Health Sports Park to see Sam Ewis earn a brace and also see Rose Lavelle and Kristen Press add to their international goal totals. All right, two chats today, uh, both touching a little bit on the upcoming decision for who will host the Women's World Cup in 2003. It's down to three bids, Colombia, Japan, and a combo bid from Australia and New Zealand. Decision day will be Thursday, June 25th. So my first chat is with Catherine Grace, a referee, and she's involved in soccer in other ways uh, down under in Australia. I wanted to get uh, an Aussie view of their hopes for hosting the Women's World Cup, plus her thoughts on the reasons behind the, let's call it Aussie exodus from NWSL this season. And then I spoke with Harji Johal of Equalizer Soccer. Har is based in Canada. Uh, she writes a lot about Canada's soccer for Equalizer. We spoke about the recent announcement that Kenneth Heiner Muller will be stepping down as Canada's head coach at the end of the summer to return to his native Denmark. Uh, also chatted a little bit about some of the Canadian players in NWSL. And in between the two chats is the Jen's Planning segment this week for the first time. It's a non-soccer topic. I hope you enjoy it. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at MixZone with two X's and at KeeperNotes. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Catherine Grace, one of my many friends from down under who are very involved in the women's game. Uh, of course, Catherine, as you and I were talking before we were recording that uh, you haven't had a lot to do, just like I haven't had a lot to do because football has been on pause. But hey, it looks like things are, are, are starting back. You've got some uh, ref gigs coming up. Uh, so it's kind of been a crazy time for everyone. I think uh, we had we basically went on hold mid March. Um, everything stopped. Um, State league, grassroots, juniors, seniors, everything. But at the moment, it looks like we'll be able to restart kind of around mid July. Teams are slowly starting to be allowed to go back to training. Referees can train in groups again, which is really exciting. So yeah, we're just kind of preparing for what the season's going to look like. Um, we've got kind of your local tier and then your state tier as well. Um, and those will both look different than usual for referees. So yeah, just kind of preparing for that and making sure we're all fit and ready to go. And coming up very soon, less than two weeks, we will know if Australia along with New Zealand wins the bid for the 2023 Women's World Cup, the only other remaining bids coming from Colombia and Japan. And unfortunately, I don't have any good contacts in Colombia or Japan to talk to them about bids. So I'm talking to you about the Australian <laughs> bid. Um, 
I mean, I think a lot of us feel it, it should be Australia, New Zealand, mm-hmm. um, but I wanted to get your perspective, um, you know, the home perspective, yeah. especially when, uh, you know, Australia had uh, started to bid for the 2003 Women's World Cup, you know, 20 some years ago. And I think they ended up pulling from that. But, you know, they hosted the 2000 Olympics. Um, I think I remember reading. I, I mean, I've just seen a lot in in. Australian newspaper coverage, some backlash from locals of like, we don't need to waste our money on this, but I think they're missing the big picture of, of, you know, what hosting can do, uh, not just Mm -hmm. for the women's game, but for the Australian Federation, for, you know, the Australian national team, the New Zealand national team, et et cetera. So, you know, give me your perspective. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. It's really exciting. I know kind of like we're all waiting with anxious bated breath about (laughs) who's going to get it. Um, We're all a little bit, we were all very relieved, I think, when Brazil pulled out because we're known rivals with Brazil. And so we're all like, (laughs) we're never going to get it if Brazil's in it. Brazil's always going to get it over us. And even now, most people I'm talking to are like, we can't jinx it. It's definitely going to be Japan. Um, (laughs) I think it's really funny because we're all, particularly within the women's football community that I'm a part of, we're all very suspicious we're used to things kind of just not working out how we'd envisioned um we have hosted i like in recent memory the biggest tournament we've hosted was the 2015 men's asian cup um Mm -hmm. which was really successful um and really exciting but like as we all know the australian women have had a really successful campaign these last couple of years they've done really really well um despite numerous coaching issues and so forth it's been really exciting to see the team grow and then we had uh, the world cup last year and as although we didn't do certainly as well as i had hoped it was really exciting to see them on the world stage in front of sold out stadiums uh and kind of all of australia getting behind them and so i think for us the world cup would be huge um it's I absolutely love that we're doing a joint bid with New Zealand. There's a couple of naysayers who are like, oh, the geography, like it's too big. And to that I say, well, if Canada, the US and Mexico can secure the Men's World Cup, then I'm sure we can handle Australia and New Zealand. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. And Russia. Russia got Russia, the World Cup. Russia's huge. I, I mean, know. I mean, they did they did games in Ekaterinburg, which is like a whole other planet away from Moscow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's <laughs> and like from a logistical events perspective, there are many ways that that can be worked around. I think for me, and like obviously I'm biased, but like Australia is the perfect place to have a World Cup. I mean, June, July, it's winter time yes but like for many countries that will be competing it won't be that cold um and in places like brisbane like where i am like right now it's um 22 degrees celsius outside it's like it's mid 70s most of the time yeah beautiful weather and it's perfect for football um i love refereeing in the winter because it is perfect for football and so I think that, and I mean, the tourism opportunities is fantastic. The 
the joint effort with New Zealand will be great. I mean, I'm always looking for an excuse to go there. Um, and I think it, at the end of the day, it's going to be huge for the development of the women's game in both countries. New Zealand currently doesn't have a professional women's league, but the Wellington Phoenix, which is part of the men's professional league in Australia, have just announced their intention to bid for a W league team, which would be fantastic to see. Um, New Zealand has some fantastic junior development programs and the Ferns have been doing really well lately. We're seeing Ali Riley, who was playing at Chelsea and now Orlando. Yes. Um, Rebecca Stott has been tearing it up at Melbourne City for years now. Um, we're all still a little bitter that she never decided to play for Australia, but <laughs> it, there's so many fantastic opportunities uh, for women's game, but also football as a whole. I think um, we, like the W League is a summer league. It kind of runs in conjunction with the NWSL starting just after the NWSL finishes and finishing just as the NWSL is starting. And it's been working really, really well. I think, however, what we're starting to see is that the training commitment and also the level of intensity that has been increasing within the W League has meant that it's not as sustainable for the athletes. Um, and as much as I personally love the short W League season and how it fits with the NWSL because we get to see – the NWSL players in the W League, I think ultimately what it's going to end up looking like is we're going to need to move to a professional full home and away season with professional clubs, players on professional contracts and uh, just developing that out into a far more robust system. I think something that stands out to me about the W League in comparison to other women's leagues is that we've, we've, being able to make it fairly sustainable. Like we have managed to maintain the league <clears throat> for a number of years uh, with a fairly high level of competition. And I mean, even in the NWSL, we've seen things like Boston Breakers folding and then FC Kansas City and so forth. And the NWSL itself hasn't been around for that long. Right. Whereas the W League has, and we've seen players like Megan Rapino, Nadine Angara, um, Carson Pickett and so forth all come over here. Savannah McCaskill is another one that comes to mind and they've done really well. And it's kind of served as a springboard for those athletes to succeed within the NWSL structure particularly. Uh, and so I think... For me, moving forward, it'd be really, and like particularly in relation to the World Cup bid, I would love to see the W League move to a full home and away season before the Women's World Cup, Um, regardless of whether or not we host it. I think as well, I would love to see, and with the World Cup, if we're able to secure that bid, it comes with it funding, which enables the Federation and also puts pressure on the Federation to be supporting the women's game. And so I think being able to, I guess, have a kick up the butt to do more and also the resources to do more will be really important and enable the W League to become competitive with the NWSL, with the WSL. I think the Americans particularly love coming to Australia. Yeah. Um, 
And I, but I think they've been aware of the change, but, but I think they've been aware that things are changing. Like when I talked to Sophia Huerta last, last fall before the end of the season, she's like, this is probably the last chance I'll have to play a season in Australia. Yeah. And I think that's becoming evident for everyone. We're seeing a mass exodus of the players from both the NWSL and the W League to the WSL, to Europe and so forth. And I think it's because they're getting longer contracts. And, and that's a good thing. That's a great thing. And it's yeah. fantastic. Uh, it's It really is fantastic for the women's game to see players like Sam Kerr at Chelsea and Caitlin Ford at Arsenal and Hayley Razzo at Everton is fantastic and it's fantastic for the national team as well because those players will be getting paid well, fed well, trained well. and Longer competition. Yeah, that allows them to periodize their training to have better recovery and prepare better for those national team commitments because for so long, particularly for the Australian national team, there's been the expectation that you play in the W League to support your country. And that's right. kind of just that's diminishing now. And I don't hate that because we're able to see these athletes in high-level competitions where they're going to be pushed and they're going to be challenged and they're going to get the best resources they can. And it's ultimately going to be, pardon, better for the Australian women's national team as a whole. I think, I mean, it's something that I still struggle with, with the NWSL is that the fact that right now, really all of the U S women's national team players are playing in the NWSL. And while kind of at the beginning of the league, it made a lot of sense to really get that home support and so forth. I would love to see kind of an international transfer market open up for the women's players in that it's a viable option for someone who's on the U S women's national team to be playing in England, in France, in Australia, uh, in Japan with the start of their new professional women's league soon as well. And really broaden up those horizons for them because I think something with the U S is that I feel like there's a risk of, it becoming stagnant because oh, yeah no the definitely. national team has all of the resources they could want but if they're only playing in the NWSL it's going to become very same same and I and, love and watching it's not the NWSL. quite it's not quite as long of a season I mean hopefully down the road it will be but yeah it, it's funny there's there's some connective tissue here between the transition for the Australian national team. And I think mm-hmm. the transition that, that we haven't yet seen with the U S national team, because everything's been on pause, but yeah. um, you know, when the league started, yeah, they, they needed those national teamers and we've had this system where the national teamers are subsidized by the Federation, but it's kind of time yeah. to move beyond that. It, it, you know, so that yeah. one, you don't Absolutely. have, well, you know, these teams have advantages that these teams don't, or these teams are missing, you know, five players every time the mm. U.S. plays because the USA plays when they shouldn't be playing. Um, but more yeah. importantly, that yeah. the, more importantly that the players have the right and the freedom to play wherever they want to play, wherever they think is best yep. for them. I mean, we all know it was a directive from U.S. soccer in 2014. Yeah. Um if you want to, if, if you want to be considered for the 2015 World Cup or the 2016 Olympics, you need to be playing stateside. 
you know, we know that that directive, I would assume no longer exists. So I would think if the coronavirus hadn't happened, I would think that post Olympics, post 2020, Mm. you would see a lot of uh, the older players on the national team going, okay, I'm going to go back to Europe or I'm going to do this. But just like what you're talking about with Australia, it's, it's like, this is, uh, another transitional stage in the growth of the women's game. It's, it's growing pains, mm. right? Like, like you're saying the Australians, you know, needing to support the league, but now it's time to move on. And that makes me think a lot about how, when that W league was started, it was Tom Sermani, the national team of the coach saying, Hey, we recognize that we're so far away geographically that it's cost mm-hmm. prohibitive to, to get a lot of good games, right. For the national team. Yeah. Board flying far, far, far away. So we need to have a league here. So we're developing more players and they're getting decent games week in, week out. So this is like the next step for Australia. Okay, we recognize that now there's other stronger leagues elsewhere where our players could benefit more, right? it's, It's like... Yeah. So so like W League is in a transition. I think NWSL is is too. Yeah. And it's, I think it's time to step it up all over the board. I think the time between, and particularly with the Olympics being delayed, the time between, for me, a a World Cup cycle is the perfect time to be making a transition and kind of preparing things and putting everything in place. Like for me, if we can secure a World Cup bid and then come to the World Cup with a full professional women's league. And like, this is me dreaming big, but a full professional women's league that is part of the international network of women's soccer, that would be fantastic because it's great promotion and it's the representation and it's being able to have people playing on the world stage and saying, this player from England, they're playing in Australia and this player from the USA, they're playing in France or the Netherlands or so forth. And I think having that opportunity would be fantastic. I think with, I mean, we all know in the W League that if a U.S. national team player has a U.S. contract, they won't play in the W League. Uh, Emily Sonnet was the perfect example. I mean, I'm not a Sydney fan, far from it, but I would have loved to have seen her come back and play for Sydney as a centre-back again because she was fantastic with them and I think it did worlds of good for her play and her development as an athlete. So it's it's interesting. But, yeah, I think it's time to step it up. I think it's time to have a good look at it. I mean, with the US, there's players I would love to see in Europe. Savannah McCaskill is one of them. Rachel Hill's another. Uh, there's a lot of players within the NWSL framework itself who I think have huge amounts of growth potential that I don't think are going to necessarily be developed within the US framework. And that's not any slight on the NWSL. I think the NWSL is a fantastic league, but we're seeing like clubs like Chelsea, PSG, Olympic Lyon, even Wolfsburg, that there's huge opportunities and it's huge for the, those players' growth. And I would love to see that become more of an opportunity for the US players, for the Australian players. We're starting to see it with the Australians Um and as much as we're losing those players from the W League and the, <laughs> the competition structure is changing and it's like yeah. we really missed Hayley Razzo at Brisbane this year. Um, it's at the end of the day, I think 
it's good for the league. Um, I don't know if the W League will ever move to a winter season. <laughs> I like the summer season, but it's also got its limitations. I think yeah. in the some regards, summer it can be, be very, very hot. Yeah, and I think with a winter season, it could open up more opportunities for other teams in other areas. I think, I mean, Darwin isn't an option for a team in the summer. There's right. too many storms. But, I mean, in the dry season, it's perfect. I think as well that uh, we – potential, the potential of moving to a winter season, I think, is one that should be explored, particularly for the women's game in the sense that – most of women's sport in Australia has been set kind of through the summer period so as not to compete with men's sport or mm-hmm. various other reasons. And I think moving it to a winter season could be fantastic and also open up opportunities for other people involved in the game. Um, I personally would love to see referee exchanges between the US and Australia. Uh, I think. Oh, that'd be great. We, we have referees here who. And again, I'm biased, who I think are worlds ahead of some of the referees we see in the NWSL. Uh, We have a number of FIFA referees in Australia who I think would be fantastic in the NWSL. And I think the opportunities for exchanges, be they short-term or long-term, between the leagues could be fantastic. I still think even if the W League moves to a season that kind of matches the timeline of the NWSL, there would still be opportunities for partnerships, which people have been talking about for ages right. and so forth, that I think would be fantastic. And, and, and I just think and some competitions kind of like what we've seen with the ICC, but like, you know, bringing yeah. over to Australian teams and doing a four team tournament with two NWSL teams. Like there, there's so many, so much potential and, for that. At the end of the day, the women's football community is so small. And the nature of the game is that we've all kind of been gelled together by this common goal and this understanding of that we're all in this together, as choosy as that is, because not everything hasn't been sunshine and daisies for us. And so there will be the friendly rivalries. There will be those opportunities for competitions and so forth like I would love to see some of the W League teams competing against US teams and so forth I would love to see some of the European women's teams coming to tournaments in the US and so forth there's so many opportunities there as well and with I think there's some really interesting things coming out of Europe as well that Spanish Federation just made announcements about professional well making the I believe it's the second tier of the Spanish women's league professional and so forth and so that's really exciting and so I think there's this big shift at the moment and I think we need to be making sure we harness that Uh, and to their credit I think FFA has been doing a fantastic job the new CEO James Johnson has been very communicative which is really appreciated and very supportive of the bid the bid team has been fantastic the move to partner with New Zealand was genius in my opinion. I know. I know. I was talking about this in my, in my other chat uh, with Harjit Johal from Canada, just like that New Zealand would never have an opportunity to host a world cup by themselves. Right. So it's, it's brilliant. 
Yeah, and they hosted, I believe, the Under-19 Women's World Cup a couple of years ago, and that was a raving success. So I think it's kind of two forces with the resources and so forth joining together, and it's it's this perfect amalgamation of resources and skills and geography and tourist-friendly destinations like Japan and Colombia are beautiful as well, but it's like, again, I'm biased, New Zealand and Australia, I think, is the perfect destination for a World Cup. I think as well it's really an opportunity in the Australian and New Zealand kind of world to put football at the forefront. We have a lot of sports that are popular in Australia. You've got rugby league, rugby union, AFL, netball, cricket, all of the sports. And the opportunity to put the women at centre stage and highlight not only our national teams but our leagues, our professional leagues, uh, is fantastic. And with that comes so many opportunities for grassroots. It's so many opportunities for coaches, medical professionals, researchers, referees, uh, like tourists. Endless opportunities <laughs> for development. Tourists. And I mean, totally want it to great be in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. Well, and like you said earlier, uh, that's actually a wonderful time to travel to Australia. The first time I traveled to Australia was in late July, and it, w- it was so pleasant in Sydney. Exactly. And the Americans and the British can hopefully avoid heat stroke. Like, <laughs> I think. The Americans always comment when they come here, it's so hot and it's so humid in summer. And I'm like, yeah. They clearly haven't lived in Houston or Orlando then. (laughs) Yeah, but at the same time, and Brisbane is very similar to Orlando. Right. I I live here now and I visited Orlando in the heat of summer, but it's, it's very much, there's very much some similarities. And I think though winter is the perfect time Sydney and Melbourne can get a little chilly, but everyone here is used to that. And if the players have been playing in Europe or in the US, it won't be anything new. I think the biggest thing for people is that Australia <laughs> Australia doesn't always have insulated houses like in the US. Like you can get if you're really cold, like Canada, if you're really cold, you have your double glazed windows, your insulation. Right. Australia doesn't always have that, but it doesn't get think, that cold. Yeah, but I still think June, July is honestly the perfect time to have it. We get beautiful weather. It's not as hot. If you look at the if you look at the bed materials, it just everything looks so gorgeous and there's so many stadiums to choose from so many cities that could host easily and and like like we've already said like adding on new zealand that just you know i think that's a smart decision and it's easy to organize things by groups much like the 2002 men's world cup did with south korea and and japan um so yeah, I mean, what's what's the press coverage right now as things lead up to the bid, or or is it? Do you think it'll mostly just be right around the day of the bid? I think it's it's hard for me to judge because I am in the women's soccer bubble, and so right. I do kind of see everything that is published. Samantha Lewis, who is an Australian journalist who writes for the Guardian, has been doing some fat, fantastic coverage of it. Uh, and there's a couple of niche sites as well that have been doing really good coverage. 
I mostly get all my coverage straight from the source. Anne Odong, who used to run the women's game and is now working for FFA on the bid, is kind of where I've been getting all my information. I think it's... It's an interesting time for football at the moment because we've had the break and grassroots, I think, is in some areas struggling because it is an expensive sport here. It's There's somewhat of a pay-to-play model, which I think is frustrating for many people. And so with this, I think there, becomes, there comes an opportunity to say that Here's an opportunity for us to put women's football on the map and here's an opportunity for us to do so many things at grassroots. And it's reinvigorating as well, I think, is this opportunity has been really reinvigorating and it's pushed a lot of change. Uh, I mean, with we got a lot of good coverage during the World Cup. I honestly, aside from what I see on Twitter, but I haven't seen much about this bid. Right. Because uh, so much else the, is going on. <laughs> so much else is going on. Like we started the year with devastating bushfires and then we had a global pandemic. It's It's been a busy time. And so with that, I haven't seen many naysayers towards the bid. I think a lot of people... A lot of the people, and I've seen any negative coverage, most of it I kind of have dismissed because they haven't necessarily vetted their concerns or there isn't necessarily an understanding of what it could mean for women's football. Or they just want the the clicks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, like, unfortunately that's all too common. So I think it is a fantastic opportunity. I'm hoping that the coverage will start ramping up a bit more. We're seeing, unfortunately, a lot of press, like a lot of cuts to press and journalism jobs, particularly in the sport department Yes, in Australia. Yes. And so that has minimized our coverage. I think I'm lucky in that I am a part of the football community. I am involved I, I and I'm able to hear things from different sources and find out information fairly easily about what's going on so and like generally speaking I tend to share that with people when I where I when and where I can so it's yeah I'm hoping the press coverage ramps up I'm hoping we see I think something that would really help the W League as a global TV deal uh, or broadcast deal rather that would enable international broadcast and so forth. And I think not only encouraging the leagues to step up, but encouraging the people around the leagues to step up, the journalists, the, the TV producers, those sort of things, and encourage them to be sharing this content and so forth. I mean, I forget, I think it was, the WSL or maybe Olympic Lyon has a documentary coming out and it's things like that where I would love to see more of that, particularly in the build-up yeah. to the Olympics. We're, the we're all Cup. so hungry for content, right? And not just because yeah. not just because of, you know, we've all been kind of stuck at home the last few months, but in general, like I'm I'm the dork that every time I'm in a bookstore, I go to the sports section and see <laughs> off chance, is there any new soccer book? that maybe is about women. Uh, you know, have you like... read Never Say Die? <laughs> no. Uh, 
Never Say Die is a fantastic one. It is about the history of um, women's football in Australia. Um, I will look that up for sure. Yeah, it's it's a really – and it's kind of – it's about Australian women's football um, and really a kind of a historical – deep dive into the history of the game in Australia. I've actually had some friends who contributed to it, which was fantastic. And I think I'm a sucker personally for a good, like heartfelt underdog documentary, like just kind of hits you right in the chest. Like, oof, I want to support this team, get behind this team. Like give me a sports montage with cinematic music and I'm there. Uh, I think I would love to see more of that coming up to the World Cup and just getting more people involved and getting more people involved at grassroots in all facets of the game. And I, uh, like as a grassroots referee, I would love to see more women involved. I believe it's 9 or 10% of referees in Queensland are women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so or is it in Australia? In Australia, sorry. <laughs> nine, or, nine to 10% of referees in Australia are women. And we're really lucky. We have fantastic role models at the very top. Kate Jackowitz, Casey Rybelt, Lara Lee uh, have all been and all are fantastic referees. We saw Casey and Kate at the Women's World Cup. We saw Kate have a fantastic World Cup. Uh, and to, we, I've actually had the opportunity to talk with a couple of them, particularly the Queensland referees, about those experiences and what that's meant for them. And every time I hear about that, all I'm thinking about is there's so many opportunities to be involving them at grassroots, and they are very involved to their credit with grassroots, but also engaging more people in the game. Uh, we're the highest junior participation sport in Australia, yet we're also one wow. of the most expensive. So wow. it's I see so many opportunities for growth, but also so many opportunities for change. I think that will be really exciting to watch it unfold over the next kind of couple of months as we hear about the bid and then that will start to ramp up, but also with the Olympics coming up and so forth. Well, and that's a good good stopping point. Of course, Catherine, you and I could keep talking for for a long time, but but I think we'll 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 cap it with that because I definitely want to have you back on um, when fingers crossed we hear the good news. We get the bid. Time for a little gensplaining. And today's topic is not a typical gensplaining topic. Uh, It's not soccer. But given the recent repeal of the U.S. soccer policy that attempted to compel national team players to stand for the anthem and the misguided move by a Florida congressman to enact legislation that would force players to stand for the anthem, I felt this would be an opportune time to explain something other than soccer. So first, let me say, regardless of your personal beliefs about if it's right or wrong to kneel while the national anthem is played, it's important to acknowledge what the law says about the issue. Nearly 80 years ago, the Supreme Court ruled that, quote, 
no official can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. Unquote. In other words, unless you are active military, no government authority can compel you to stand for the flag or national anthem or sing the anthem or put your hand over your heart. The free speech clause of the First Amendment protects an individual's right from being forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance, salute the flag, etc. And the reason that the Supreme Court made that ruling back in 1943 was due to a suit filed by several Jehovah's Witnesses. Their children in West Virginia were being expelled from school and then prosecuted as delinquents for no other reason than that they would not salute the flag. And it's important to remember the Jehovah's Witnesses' religion forbids saluting or pledging symbols, which they, they include the flag as a symbol. So that 1943 ruling, referred to as West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett, is considered a landmark decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. Notably, it was announced on Flag Day, which is the day this is being recorded. Definitely worth a little Googling if you're not uh, familiar with the case or that story. It's also important, I think, to note that U.S. soccer does not receive any government funding. Its revenues come from amateur player registration fees, sponsorships, ticket sales, merchandise sales, broadcast rights fees. So technically, U.S. soccer could, as a private entity, compel its senior national team athletes to stand for and salute the flag, but they would have to negotiate this specific player conduct with both player associations as part of their CBA. Last thing I wanted to mention, uh, I recently read the NPR interview with Nate Boyer, the former NFL player and retired Army Green Beret, who was the one who originally suggested to Colin Kaepernick that he kneel for the anthem instead of sitting on the bench in protest. I'd I'd highly recommend uh, digging up this interview if you want to listen to it. Boyer said, quote, in my experience, kneeling's never been in our history really seen as a disrespectful act. I mean, people kneel when they get knighted. You kneel to propose to your wife and you take a knee to pray. And soldiers often take a knee in front of a fallen brother's grave to pay respects. So I thought, if anything, besides standing, that was the most respectful. But of course, that's just my opinion, unquote. What's most important, I believe, is that we're all allowed to have our opinion and not be punished for expressing it. And that's the end of my non-soccer gensplaining. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Harjeet Johal, freelance soccer reporter who mostly writes for Equalizer Soccer. You can always find her great Canadian coverage at that website. Har, how are you doing up in up in Canada? Tell me what it's like up there. I'm doing really good. I'm staring out the window, enjoying the, the rain that's falling and our our brisk, cool temperature at the minute. So it's going well. I'm I'm COVID free. I'm going for lots of long walks and I'm I'm enjoying life in my isolation chamber. So the only thing you're missing, of course, is soccer, live soccer. Oh, I miss soccer, all sports, all practices, matches, you name it. But at least we've got some soccer news and specifically Canadian soccer news. Um, 
So we heard this week that Kenneth Heiner Moller is returning to his native Denmark, uh, stepping down as Canada's soccer coach. Were you surprised when you heard that? I can't say I was too surprised that he was leaving. I would say I was more surprised by the timing of the decision. Obviously, we know his contract ran out after the Olympic cycle. So perhaps there was a discussion as to whether he would stay on post Tokyo Olympics. But with that out of the picture because of the pandemic we're in, you know, it makes sense for Canada to kind of go into a new direction. So I would say the timing is probably the biggest surprise that I have. Yeah, when I first read the headline, I was like, oh, what happened? And then the more I read about it, I realized, uh, you know, like you're saying, hey, his contract was, you know, going to be up after this, this summer's Olympics if they had happened and that he was planning to go back to Denmark, already has a gig as what, like director of coaching education um, or something like that, uh, that it, it kind of made sense. Um, and, and I think we may see other coaching changes like this. I mean, we've already seen Phil Neville uh, make his announcement about England because this pause has just thrown a, a kink in, in, in everybody's plans. Right. Um, but I think this, this change for Canada could create a wonderful situation. Um, you've got some extra time to do an extended coaching search. There's certainly some good candidates out there. Um, you know, it's and it and it's extra prep time forever comes on to, you know, prep for, uh, you know, summer 2021 and qualifying 2022, and of course, Women's World Cup 2023. So, tell me who you think, uh, you know, the leading candidates for the new Canada head coach job should be. I obviously think uh, Rian Wilkinson is the early favorite to. Uh, get the job as the next women's coach. You know, she's been with the team in a coaching role since she retired in January of 2017. She worked on John Herdman's staff. She was in charge of the U17, U20 program. So she's seen the young players uh, develop and come up. And she was an assistant on Kenneth's uh, coaching staff at the World Cup. So in those three years since she retired, you know, she's done a lot of coaching. She has her UEFA A license, which is really important. She's vastly entrenched in the Canadian soccer uh, coaching system right now. So she's a, she's definitely a big early candidate to uh, take over. In terms of who else could be in the running, we haven't really heard too many too many names mentioned. Uh, I'm just going to throw this one out there. I know she loves the Pacific Northwest, currently with uh, U.S. soccer in a big role there. But I could see Laura Harvey maybe throwing her hat into this ring. So uh, I would say those two names are the ones I look at uh, most right now. And that's a great point about Laura Harvey, especially when, again, with this big pause, the U-20 Women's World Cup that she had, you know, gotten the U.S. U-20s to qualify for, but now it's been postponed to next year would be potentially a natural time to, you know, to to take that opportunity. Um, And we know that that she's coached, uh, you know, several of the Canadian players, you know, that have played in NWSL, you know, Diana Matheson, Desiree Scott at uh, Utah, um, was it Carmelina Moscato who played for the Rain? I can't remember. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes. Yeah. 
So, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to have like two really qualified women for them to choose from. Um, fingers crossed they don't swoop in with a, hey, here's a guy that's just trying to get <laughs> coaching cred to move on to something bigger. Um, but but what are your thoughts of, of how the, the, the coaching search will be handled? Do you think it's something like within a couple months? we'll have a new coach for Canada or they'll take their time depending or what do you think? No, I think, I think you're right. I think it'll, it'll be fast. It won't take as long as we maybe expect. I would say before the end of summer, uh, we know Kenneth's going to leave on August 31st to start his new role as the head of coaching education with Denmark. So I can see maybe a new coach coming in and working with Kenneth before he departs. I think that would be a good ideal situation. You know, the longer you wait and, you know, you have the chance where you're not going to have that opportunity to learn with uh, Kenneth. So I I think it'll be a fast uh, solution to get a new coach in there. Obviously, they have Rian Wilkinson in there right now. And as you mentioned a few minutes ago, in terms of just bringing in a name to uh, coach the team, kind of how Phil Neville just came out of nowhere, you know, I, I don't think we can underestimate that because we've seen uh, with Canada's men's national team, you know, John Herdman did not have coaching experience at the men's national team level, and he's he's got that job. So I think we could see that trend. That's certainly a possibility, and so I would not rule that out at all. But do you think Herdman would have been considered for the Canada men's job if he had not spent the previous five years with the Canada women, right? Like he was a no, he was a known entity to Canada soccer. Obviously, they're familiar with him, so they have his resume. They know what he did to help elevate the program. So, in terms of they knew what he was capable of doing and what kind of coach he is, but I could still see a guy who's maybe with Canada soccer or maybe with another organization looking to get into coaching. And we've seen it. Unfortunately, the women's game is often used as a stepping stone for a coach to get somewhere else in their career. So I wouldn't rule that out, but we'll see what happens. And we are again in this really weird pocket where it's, it's natural after a women's world cup and after Olympics for there to be coaching changes. But now we have this, this pause, you know, I wonder too, if there may be some coaches who have moved on after coaching a team last summer in France, haven't found a new gig yet and might want to throw their hat in the ring for this as well. Yeah, there's certainly uh, coaches around the world who may be interested. Maybe we don't even know they're interested. So it's, Hopefully it's a, a big search. Hopefully they, they have a big field and they take into a lot of consideration. I know they do prefer the coach to be able to be bilingual and Rian Wilkinson is fluent in both English and French as a Quebec native. So that's a factor they like to see as well. So we'll see what kind of choices they make in the end. And that's a really good point. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, that it, it's, it's that's you know uh, a kind of inclusion that we don't have to think about in the states right um you know english is the main language they're going to expect the coach to know english anything else is a bonus right canada two official languages you got to have a coach that can can speak both that that reminds me a friend of mine asked one uh recently he's like hey so belgium has three official languages 
you know, which one did they speak when they're playing together? And apparently it's English. <laughs> anyway, side note. Um, so moving on from, from Kenneth Heiner Muller leaving, leaving Canada, um, we have to, of course, give another shout out to Christine Sinclair today. The day that we're recording is her birthday. Today she is 37. Yes, you got it. I got it. Yeah. So she has, she's been playing for Canada for more than 20 years now. She got, I remember she got her first cap March 2000. Um, and it's, it's incredible if, if you look at her stats. And of course, everybody knows that I'm looking at stats all the time that just her very consistent performance, right? Like, I wonder if, uh, you know, Canada played, you know, even 80% of how often the U.S. played, you know, what her numbers would be like. And when you look and see that, you know, not only was she, you know, capped at, at 16, she was starting at 16 and 17, right? Like she, she was identified pretty early. And I w I would say she was like Mia Hamm was, more than 10 years earlier where you were still developing the team. You saw the, t the potential in this person, you go ahead and you throw them in to the deep end and, and get them that experience. It'll be invaluable later on. We also should take a, a minute to say how healthy she has been throughout her career. She yes. <laughs> she's always been fit, always on the pitch and, you know, to be able to score goals, you need to be on the pitch. So her, her health and durability has been a, a big factor. And I also think if she had, you know, more consistent scoring depth around her, I think right. she would also have a lot more goals. I know her and Melissa Tancredi were a great team up top. So I think if there's more players who could kind of link in together, I think she'd have well over 200 goals by now. Well, and, and that reminds me of another player I wanted to talk to you about, Diana Matheson, who, you know, missed the 2019 World Cup due to injury. Uh, we didn't see her at all in NWSL uh, last year because of injury. And she's been someone who's been playing with Canada almost as long as, as Sinclair. And and she can provide a lot from midfield, right? Of course, she can also go up and, and score. So, you know, I'm excited to see her back on the field. Um, I'm assuming she'll be playing in the Neighborhood Challenge Cup, but also to, to have her back with Sinclair. I mean, we already saw the difference that she provided uh, in March for the, the tournament in France. Yeah, I think the Challenge Cup is a great opportunity for Diana Matheson to show you know, what she's able to do, how capable she is out there on the pitch. And you're going to need a healthy Diana Matheson at the Tokyo Olympics next year. So Matheson, if she can get you know into the Challenge Cup, get a rhythm and get back to where she was before her, her injury, I think that is a, a big factor that Canada needs. They need the depth. They need uh, scoring another option. And you've got all these young players who are coming through the system who are, you know, they're on the verge of being really great. And I think Matheson can help not only in terms of, you know, leadership and helping, but she can also show, you know, what she can do on the pitch. And that's a great way for the youngsters to learn. 
Well, and so let's look at some of the the, the Canadian players that are in NWSL, and, and I'm assuming we'll see all of them in the NWSL Challenge Cup that kicks off later this month. Um, you know, psyched to see that Sky Blue uh, signed rookie Evelyn Viennes already. Um, you know, and that, of course, she'll be using international spot. I don't believe she's been capped by the senior team, but I would assume she's someone who is at least on the radar uh, for Canada soccer. Yeah, she's definitely on the radar, and she has a lot of strong potential. I think she could be someone who we could see in future tournaments making a big difference. So it'll be really interesting to see how her path and how her, her journey develops. You know, as we know with Canada, we have a lot of depth in the goalie positions, and that's that's true in the NWSL. So I think the shot stoppers <laughs> will be they'll be getting a lot of action. So I would keep an eye on that. And in terms of the NWSL, I I don't really have a specific team that I like to watch or cheer for. I'm always supporting Canada and our Canadian athletes, and I want to see them do well. And so I'll be keeping an eye on uh, Canada's uh, players in the Challenge Cup and seeing how they perform. We all know the U.S. gets all the accolades, but, you know, Canada's up here, too. Well, and and I know there's a lot of fans here for for several of the the Canadian players. And speaking of shot stoppers, you know, Kaylin Sheridan, you know, has been so solid for Sky Blue. Um you know, doing so much hard work over the last couple of years as such a young keeper. And I kind of wonder if she has, uh, you know, a better chance of maybe beating out, you know, Stephanie LeBay for the the starting job for the Olympics, because now she's got an opportunity, you know, she's got another year, um, another year to show what she can do. That is a fantastic point. Sheridan has been you know, unbelievable in the NWSL last season and, I expect her to continue that trend. You know, she's she seems to be saving everything. And it's with Steph LaBay. She's she's been in the number one spot since uh, Karina LeBlanc and Aaron McLeod have kind of faded away from the program. And I know LaBay has talked about retirement after the Tokyo Olympics. So with it being pushed back, I think she'll s- still have a tremendous opportunity to be the number one goalie. But with a new coach coming in, you just don't know how they're going to think and how they're going to do things. So I think it's a, definitely a great opportunity for Sheridan. And I know a lot of people who follow the Canadian women's team, I think they see Kaylin Sheridan as the next number one goalie. So it's definitely a big time in her career to see uh, where her game goes and what level she can reach next. Well, and speaking of other Canadian keepers, I'm glad you mentioned Erin McLeod. Um, I was a little surprised uh, to see her come back to NWSL and sign with Orlando. Um, like McLeod, uh, like Sinclair, she she turned 37 this year, um, you know, has struggled with injuries the last couple of years. Um, but you know, as we know, keepers can can last much longer than than field players. But but what are your thoughts on McLeod? I think she she wants to play soccer. She wants to be on the pitch with her teammates, and I think it's a great opportunity in Orlando. You've got two uh, tremendous national team goalies down there with her and Ashlyn Harris. So I think there'll be a good battle for minutes, and we'll see uh, how the Pride uh, do this year. Well, and what can you tell me about Jenna Hellstrom? She's signed with the Spirit this year. This is her her first time playing in NWSL. Um, She's been in that Canada pool a while, never seems to make the final rosters. But uh, what can you tell us about Jenna Hellstrom? 
there's a lot of, you know, depth within Canada. And I think she's still trying to find her role and, and find a way where she can contribute. I know in terms of the roster, we're seeing a lot of the young players mix in with the veterans. And we haven't really seen Jenna get a great opportunity to show what she can do. I think being in the NWHL with Washington, I think that could potentially uh, give her some minutes, give her uh, an opportunity to showcase what she's all about. And so she's definitely someone to watch as well as she tries to break into uh, the national team and earn some full minutes. So, you know, we've mentioned the, the big names in the NWSL among Canadian players, but there's certainly ones to watch like Jenna Hellstrom, uh, Rebecca Quinn, and uh, Nichelle Prince. So it's an exciting time for Canadian soccer. Yeah, and and speaking of Prince, she's got two other Canadians with her playing for the Dash, or as we like to say, Canada South. You know, so you've got Chappie and Schmidt playing along with with Prince. Um, you know, really looking forward to see Prince back on the field. Um, you know, she started like fire last year and and had some good performances in France. It's just you know a shame that that she had the the knee injury and also intrigued to see, you know, how things shake out with, uh, OL rain. Um, we've seen a lot of, a lot of player movement, right? Cause of course you have a new coach and, and they had a lot of injuries last year and they picked up Quinn after the women's world cup. I don't feel like we really got to see what she could do. Um, so I'm, I'm intrigued to see what the 2020 Quinn looks like. I think that the Rain are a very interesting, very um, keen team that we're going to want to keep an eye on. And it's not just about the rebrand. You know, they've got, you know, they've got a lot of strong players, a lot of national team players that we're familiarized with, like Megan Rapino. But Rebecca Quinn is a very strong, versatile player. And, you know, she can play center back, she can play in the mid, she can play defensive holder. So she's going to have a lot of opportunities to be part of the rain squad and really, you know, lock down defensively and play a strong role this year. And just speaking with uh, Rebecca uh, last week for our story I did, she is a tremendous interview if you ever get the chance to talk to her. She's very well-versed. She is very intelligent in what she says. And she really stands up for what she believes in. She's an activist, and she really supports um, everything. So she really puts her heart into stuff on and off the pitch. And um, she's she's a great human, and she loves gardening. So if you like gardening, you should talk to Rebecca about her gardening. (laughs) <laughs> I like I like that tip. I like that tip. All right, well let's look look ahead to 2023 because by the end of this month we will know who's going to host the 2023 World Cup. It's down to three bids, Colombia, Japan, and the joint bid of Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Brazil pulled out of the bidding and I'm really glad they did because it was. It's not been looking good uh, down there. Um, but what are your thoughts on on where you want the twenty twenty three Women's World Cup to go? Is it really down to three bids? I think it's a race <laughs> between Japan's bid and the joint Australia New Zealand bid, and I've got New Zealand and Australia way out in front. A kangaroo's leap of a jump that's how big the gap is i think that that's where the bid's going to be in 2023 and i'm really excited i hope the weather will be really nice i'm looking forward to exploring australia new zealand i've never been there i know they have zero 
uh, COVID cases in New Zealand. So that's an even <laughs> better reason to go there. And the football, it's a great opportunity to showcase women's football in Australia and New Zealand. We know that their league is uh, really successful down there. But, you know, a lot of us, we've not we've not been there. We've not, you know, experienced what it's like there. So I think that'll be a, a good time to go. And hopefully they have their act together because a lot of us were all over the place in France. And so I'm looking forward to a trip to Australia, New Zealand, and especially because the Canadian dollar is so close <laughs> to those countries. That's what I'm excited about, Jen. Well, you know, I have a lot of faith in, in Australia since they hosted the 2000 Olympics and also the 2003 Rugby World Cup. I know both of those were a while ago, but uh, I, I think... You know, I, I think they've got their act together. When I've looked at the bid documents, of course, they're all really beautiful, right? But once you start looking through the details, you're like, wow. Um, and I love that it's a joint bid with New Zealand. I think that that's really what makes this bid so unbeatable because New Zealand would never have the opportunity or, or really the ability to host this kind of tournament all by itself. It, you know, does not have enough stadiums, enough infrastructure, right? But it's a natural joint bid with Australia. Um, you know, when would when would that federation, that confederation ever get to host a major tournament, right? So um, I love that Australia, you know, like you said, gives up op- opportunity to a lot of people. It's like, hey, I'm going to Australia, right? Um, it's all of its infrastructure is there. Um, it's kind of spread out, but you can group. Well, I guess Perth is like, this is what, I, what I've told people. I'm like, Australia is basically the size of the continental US, roughly. So you think of Perth as like LA and all the other venues are like New Orleans up to New York. It's all kind of East Coast. Um, but it's it. I I would love 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 to have have the women's World Cup there. I think the only things, the only advantage that Colombia has is time zone, um, and I don't know how much this is going to be a factor for the voters. Um, but I have seen historically anything that they can do to make sure that uh, you have the Americas and Europe in appropriate viewing times you know they they try to do it's obviously we've seen the men's world cup in japan and south korea um but that's to me that's really colombia's only only advantage um japan obviously they would have their shit together it would be run really well um you know but I also feel like we haven't had that many Women's World Cups. Two of them have already been in an Asian country. And I don't mean my confederation, because obviously now Australia is by confederation. But truly, you know, China's had it twice. So I'd rather see it go somewhere different. So Australia, New Zealand or Colombia would be my preference. And obviously, 
Australia, New Zealand, way above Colombia. But bottom line, I'm excited that we're going to finally know, even though it's way too late in the game to be making these kind of decisions, and that it's not just one country bidding, right? And it's not even just two countries bidding. So like Canada, as you remember, was only bitter, right? Uh, I think France came down to France. Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe had a chance. Well, Zimbabwe withdrew. You know, I just remember some idiot reporter asking a Canadian official at the beginning of the Women's World Cup in 2015 after all of the CONCACAF, um, you know, embezzlement stuff came out saying, how much did you pay FIFA to get this World Cup? And the poor official is like, uh, we were the only bidder left at the end. <laughs> like, we're not stupid. We didn't we didn't have to bribe anybody. Um yeah, I mean, we, we could talk for hours about how stupid it is that it's, you know, barely three years out and it's being decided now when we knew that Qatar would get 2022 all the way back in 2010. Um, but I'm just like said, I'm, I'm excited that it's multiple bids and they all look strong bids. And the one bid that I didn't think should be there has pulled out. So... We'll know in a few weeks. I so. think it's a, a really strong point you make about Colombia and the time zones in terms of television and broadcast rights. You know, that brings in a lot of revenue. It brings in a lot of eyeballs for viewership. And right. you can't overlook that because that is a big factor. That is a huge decision that, you know, is taken into consideration. And I also think in terms of Japan and Australia, it is a hell of a long way to get to either of those countries and New Zealand. And so yes. how many how many people are going to want to trek halfway around the world? I know, you know, Vancouver, we have direct flights there, but I don't know how many people are going to want to haul all the way over there. So I think, you know, that's a factor as well. But as I said at, at the beginning, I think New Zealand and Australia, it's their bid to lose and I expect them to get it. Right. And and it can't always be based on on travel whims, right? Because a lot of it is how much can you get your own people to come out and watch the games, right? Um, especially, you know, again, coming back to New Zealand, that they would never have an opportunity to do this on their own. Um, they would never have an opportunity to host a, a Men's World Cup. So... You know, you you could make this a big enough event um, that at least Australia and New Zealand can support. And frankly, I wouldn't mind if there were slightly fewer Americans um, in Australia than there were in France, because I really didn't feel like I was in France at all. Really? You didn't <laughs> enjoy them taking over Lyon for a week? No, I didn't. And and here's, here's my last complaint of the day. Um, you know... You would never, in a Men's World Cup, schedule both semifinals and the final for the same city in the same venue. Yeah. Right? Um, that planning was clearly done because they knew that American soccer fans would buy that ticket package in advance, you know, um, book that book that trip, which is like, great, so you've got some financial security, but I feel like it you know you do affect the what's the the competitive balance of the tournament and and it was um i don't think it was right that leon only had the semifinals and final right so there had been nothing 
there until the semifinals and finals. So you have all of these systems that have to work suddenly at the most important part of the tournament. Unlike, say, in, in, say in Russia... You. Yes. Yeah, so in Russia, the, both semifinal hosts had already hosted multiple games, right? So the volunteers knew what they were doing. The hotels knew what they were doing. The locals were used to these people <laughs> not speaking Russian, right? And it, it felt like there was a portion of Leon that was like, what? What's happening? Why? The infrastructure in Leon was not ready for a week of women's soccer just to take over, you know, as soon as you got off the train station, you saw half the, the street there. It is construction everywhere. Right. And so they did not have that together. And you need to have everything clicking and running seamlessly when you're taking on a big World Cup event like Leon did. And hopefully going forward, uh, the organizers learn from that and we have it more efficiently run going forward because this is women's soccer and it really matters. And you saw how many people turned up in France and there's a lot of care there and it needs to be reciprocated. So fingers crossed it goes to the right place and it's run a lot better than 2019. Well, Har, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, not only about Canadian soccer, but also Women's World Cup and keep up your great work on Equalizer Soccer. Thank you very much for having me, Jen. It's always a pleasure talking women's soccer with you. Right, time to wrap it up with the back four. Less than two weeks away from the first kick of the NWSL Challenge Cup. The opening match will be Saturday, June 27th. That game will air on CBS, uh, the actual regular over-the-air channel. This will mark the first time ever, believe it or not, that a women's pro game in the USA airs on one of the four primary networks. Not Fox Sports 1, not ESPN 2, No streaming, actual just plain old CBS. The championship match in late July will also air on CBS. And all games will be available on CBS All Access in the USA and via Twitch internationally. And note that CBS All Access is just $5 a month. Be sure to keep an eye on NWSLsoccer.com for tournament announcements, including kickoff times. And yes, I am making a tournament standing sheet where you can plug in the scores the standings will automatically update. So keep an eye out for that. And before the tournament, if you need to get caught up on all the team rosters, be sure to check out the Keeper Notes Google Sheet of Rosters by Club. It's accessible from the Woso Nerd Links page at KeeperNotes.com, along with a lot of other resources. Uh, note that we do not have yet have final rosters for the tournament. Um, I would assume that those would come out sometime in the next week, but I will keep updating those pages as we hear more announcements. And be sure uh, to click on bgn.fm, or rather type that into your web browser. That's the Beautiful Game Network. That's the host for this podcast. Uh, They have started adding a lot more NWSL coverage. There's a lot of great NWSL player profiles written by my friend Carson Merck. 
And I've also put online, if you go to keepernotes.com and click on store, I've posted a lot of women's soccer merch and some other non-women's soccer merch uh, for sale as I've been cleaning out my closets, old game day programs, event t-shirts, books, videos, collectibles, all kinds of random items. So check that out. And speaking of items for sale, also on that store, of course, the NWL Almanac and the new Houston Dash Almanac. Both feature comprehensive league and club historical data that you cannot find anywhere else. Lots of great photos, too, from my photography friends, Gia, Michael, Ray, and Michelle. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Want to give a big shout out to our sponsor, Roughneck, Roughneck Scarves, excuse me, the official scarf supplier to MLS, USL, and US Soccer, and also to Icarus FC. Great place to go if you're looking for a completely custom kit for your youth club or Sunday squad or maybe even a semi pro team. Let them help you design a new custom kit at IcarusFC.com. Also want to thank all the listeners, um, anyone who emails or tweets about the Mix Zone, and most of all, thanks to Sean and the Beautiful Game Network for making this podcast possible. But now she's everybody's girl.